Well, turn with me to Ephesians 2. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're finishing the second chapter this morning. Uh, we'll be covering verses 19 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. It should be marked. I see that hand. Do we have one Bible for front row up here? It should be marked already. And I'll be just reading uh, verses 19 through 22, so read along with me. You don't have to read out loud, but um, Ephesians 2, starting with verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's pray over our text. And you pray for me. You know, when, when we pray over this text, I need your prayers as much as I'm praying over this. So you pray for me while I pray for the Lord to bless this time. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray your blessing on your word. And Lord, you change each and every one of us. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would drive out anything that is of the enemy in this room, that you would quench every dart of the enemy, that we would hear crystal clear the voice of the Lord, strengthen your people, and Lord, just return us to that first love, united with you, but together. In your name we pray. Amen. The household of God. Is it a home? Is it a fortress? Is it a sanctuary? Is it a temple? Is it a family? Is it a kingdom? Is it a place? Is it a person? Is it many persons? Is it a place of rest or is it a place of work and service? Is it here or is it an eternity? Is it physical? Or is it spiritual? Is it visible? Or is it invisible? Yes. If you've heard me teach, I, I do this from time to time. You say, well, how can it be all of those things? Yes. The household of God is supernatural. And in one sense, it's beyond description. And yet it's accessible to a little child or an aging adult. It's deeply complex, and yet, get this, it's simplistic in its operation. Did you hear that? The household of God is deeply complex, yet simple in its operation. In the household of God, peace rules and reigns, and everyone is invited to the household of God, but not everybody comes. Everyone's invited. You ever, you ever thrown a a dinner, and you put out an invite list, but not everybody came. They were certainly invited, but not everybody comes. Not everybody wants to come in. And Paul continues here in chapter 2 of Ephesians to describe to the Ephesians who they have responded to the invitation of what God has done for them, and in them, and now in himself. 
And God has made them alive from formerly being completely dead in sin, just like you and I were, brought peace into their hearts, into their minds, and has broken down those walls of division that we looked at last week, broken down those walls of division between Jews, between Gentiles, between people groups. I was thinking this morning as I was praying, I said, God, you love Muslims. You love Hindus. You love atheists who say you don't even exist. And when they get saved, God breaks down the walls of all those groups, doesn't he? It doesn't matter what color you are, all that stuff. God breaks those walls down. It's God that establishes relationships. Back in verse 4, look in your Bibles in Ephesians 2. Back in verse 4, it said, uh, but God. And in verse 13, it says, but now. And here in verse 19, it says, now therefore. So we have these transitions, and they're not just little transitions. They're big, but God transitions. But now, now therefore. Now therefore, what does this mean? He's emphasizing one final piece of the picture. But God, but now, which was Jesus Christ, but God, but Christ, now therefore, he's emphasizing this one final piece of the picture in understanding what God has done in us individually, but also us collectively as the church. And we want to look at three things this morning in our time together. Make sure I'm on here. Just advance me to our standing. You'll see it in the deck. Just there we go. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's take a look at um, starting in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers. So at one time we were. We looked at this last week. We were afar off. We're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. We're no longer afar off, which is back in verse 17. And he preached peace to you who are afar off. We've been brought near to God. We've been given access to the Father's presence. We talked about that. But we're not visitors. When I go to pray to the Father, I'm not a visitor. When I go to Subway, I'm a visitor. <laughs> right? In some places, I'm only going once after you say, oh, this isn't so great. I won't be visiting here anymore. We're not visitors to the household of God. When your kids come home, do you say, hey, we got some visitors here? <laughs> no, they're not visitors. We've been given access to the Father's presence. We're not visitors. We're not outsiders. We're not even welcome guests. Welcome guests is a good thing, but we're not welcome guests. We're beyond welcome guests. I mean, it's good to be a welcome guest. I've been a guest in other countries. I've been a guest in other homes. But you're in the Father's plan. We're not just welcome guests. We've been made by Christ and through the Spirit of God, citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Thy what come? Kingdom come. We've been made citizens of the kingdom of God and fellow members of the household and family of God. God is in the adopting business. Amen. He doesn't have any natural born, his son, Jesus, but the rest, that was 
for all eternity, but the rest of us are adopted in. The distinction was particularly relevant uh, when he's talking about citizens here. This is particularly relevant to the Ephesian hearers because they knew and understood that Roman citizenship, and under the Roman Empire, Roman citizenship was very valuable, and it was prized in that day. Paul's interaction with a Roman centurion, you can read about it in Acts chapter 22. I don't have time to turn there. But it underscores why citizenship would resonate with the Ephesians, why Paul would even use the word uh, citizenship here. In Acts 22, 28, it says, The commander answered, speaking to Paul, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, I was born a citizen. Beat that. Right? But, but the commander said, I had to spend a whole boatload of money to become a citizen. Extremely valuable. But if you're here today, you can't buy citizenship into heaven. You can't say, well, uh, I'm a billionaire, uh, Warren Buffett. I would just like to give $100 million for mine. Can't buy it. Can't buy citizenship. You can only be born again into it. Born again into the kingdom of God. Born again into the household of God. Born again into this citizenship. And then what Jesus told Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus, religious leader, very religious, uh, knew, this, knew the Old Testament, visits Jesus in the middle of the night, a little embarrassed, right? Comes in the middle of the night in John chapter 3. Jesus said, all of your works aren't good enough. You, I know you're Jewish. I know you're a descendant of uh, Abraham. That's true. But you need to be a member of the household of God. And that only comes by Jesus saying, being born again. Well, I've already been born by my mother. What's flesh is flesh. I'm talking about the spirit. You've got to be reborn from above. But this invaluable citizenship uh, is given to us through what? It's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, life. No one comes to the Father, comes to the household, comes through the front door of the house. There's no back door entrance. There's only the front door of Jesus, and that's only through repentance in Jesus Christ. And this is given to everyone in Ephesus that Paul had met. They would all receive the same message, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And every one of them that received that message, believed and repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they were made alive just like you and me. Same as the exact process 2,000 years uh, later here. And all of our citizenship, this citizenship supersedes any other citizenship. Also, when you understand that God says you've been made citizens of the household of God, um, we are as much citizens of God's kingdom now as the saints that are already up in heaven. Isn't that great to know? We're as much citizens of heaven right now. Say, well, I don't live in heaven. Well, you know, when I leave the country this summer to go to El Salvador, I'm as much of a U.S. citizen in El Salvador as I am here. When you start and I start believing that our real citizenship is in heaven, we'll start acting like heaven. When we believe this is our citizenship, we'll act like America. We'll act like the world. We, when we start to realize that our true citizenship is up there, it'll change the way we live down here. In Philippians 3.20, Paul wrote, For our citizenship is in heaven from whom uh, we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you really believe, Christian, that you're more of a citizen of heaven than you are an American? I'm thankful to be an American, 
but my citizenship in heaven far supersedes, which is why I love America, but I also love the Congo and people in Austria and people in North Korea. And because we're not, those are the ones that you're going to spend all eternity with. It's that citizenship, that global salvation that Jesus has done. But more than just citizens of the same kingdom, we've all become members of the same household, the same home, the same father, the same family. It was cool uh, uh, on Thursday when, uh, and I see Xavier's here now, we were on the, we were on the call with Samoa and I, and I was praying, I said, you know, Lord, it's awesome that Chris is in Samoa, me and Xavier are here in Chesterfield County, but we're all three standing in the same throne room right now. Amen. And through the magic of modern day, you know, Skype and, uh, and phones and stuff, we can actually have a voice conversation and all be in the same throne room of God. Isn't that great? Amen. But really, we're in the living room of God because we're in this household of God. We've all been adopted personally by God through Jesus into the family. We may look different but here's the cool thing. We make an awesome family photo. <laughs> we may look a lot different, but a lot different makes a great family photo. And God's building this family photo even as we speak. Remember that Pointer Sisters song, We Are Family? Remember that? It always brings up bad memories to me because I was a Baltimore Oriole fan, and the Pittsburgh Pirates came back, and I was miserable because the Pirates came back and won. I was like, I don't want to hear this song. But... They're right. We are family. It's not just sisters either. It's a, a lot of other people too. But I tell you what, it, it, when you're a family, we have to not just know we're a family, but embrace being a family. Amen. Amen. It's one thing, you know, there's people that have family and they don't have a good family life. This isn't God's family. You have to embrace the family of God. Say, so you've been adopted into it, now you must embrace it. Families are supposed to love each other. Amen. Families are supposed to be there for one another. Families are supposed to encourage one another. They're supposed to help one another. They're supposed to pray for one another. They're supposed to share meals together. Now, all of this takes time, surrender, effort. It's an intentional recognition that we're now in a family. The acronym from Dennis Waitley's Seeds of Greatness on Love is this. L, listening when others are speaking. You have to practice to listen, to hear other people in the family of God. I want to hear them, not just like, as soon as you're done, I'm ready to pipe in. I didn't hear a word you said because I've got my list to dump on you. Or to supersede what you just said or whatever. Listening when others are speaking. Oh, overlooking petty faults and forgiving all failures. Everyone fails. You've got to forgive those things. V, valuing other people for who they are. You know that person, however you are, is how God made you. You start looking at something and say, hey, they've got all kinds of issues. That's how God made them. He's still working on them just like you. They look at you and they say, you've got a lot of issues too. E, expressing love in a practical way. 
in a practical way, tangible way. These are things that bond a family. But we're not just a family. The family of God is a family on a mission to reach the rest of the world and bring more into the family, more adoptions. Remember I've said before, when God goes into an adoption, you know, uh, let's say it's um, a nursery, and they say, you can adopt any, God says, I'll adopt them all. And say, well, I'll take that one and that one, but that's all I can afford. God has no limitations. He's adopting everyone. This family is on a mission now. So don't forget one other important factor that takes place in a family. Because the church is one large family with smaller families. You ever been to a family reunion? And you know that the family reunion, we're all one family, but this is cousin side over here, this is cousin side over here, aunt and uncle, uh, this is our crazy uncle over here, and the, you know, they've got all these different people, but it's one family. Well, that's the family of God, but then you have the individual families. We'll get into this a little bit later, exactly what this means. You have these individual families, but in a family, there's family life. Do you know everyone has chores to do in a family? Everyone plays a role. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35 through 36, again, these are Jesus' words, not mine. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. Do you know what waist girded meant? You were a servant. You were mopping the floors. You were bringing the food. You were cleaning up. You had to have the lamps lit. You had to keep putting oil in the lamps. You had to be like one waiting for their master. You, ever, you know, when you go to rest, you get a waiter. They are supposed to wait on you. And it's their job to say, what else can I do for you? What else can I do? This is what we're supposed to be doing for one another and for the Lord. Everyone in the family is supposed to be serving. In our house, we have three daughters, no sons. And no one's going to get my name passed on, sorry to say. But the more I see those of you that have little boys, I am really glad at times. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for not giving me a son. I'm, too, I'm wound up enough as it is. Um, we have family over. The boys, my house is about to be torn to pieces. The girls are like reading and stuff. You know, but, um, I love your sons, don't get me wrong. But I'm, just, I'm just saying that sometimes you realize later God knows what he's doing. So anyway, we have three girls in our house. And um, did you know that we require all of them to do stuff? We're gonna say, you know, you too, because you have a gifting. You don't have to do anything. Just this one has to. You're Cinderella. You've got to do everything, right? Now, everyone has to be part of the team. Everyone has to pull their weight. Everyone has to work in the family of God. Brother and sister, if you're here... God has a place for you on the wall to be working for the Lord, not just, well, well my job is to critique messages. Well, we got enough people doing that. Everyone has to put some rice on the stove. Everyone has to put silverware on the table. Everyone has to clean up. Everyone has to find a place. Say, Lord, where am I supposed to be girded and serving? That's our standing, a family of God. We get all the benefits of the citizenship and the family of God, but we also have responsibility within the family of God. This is the standing that the Ephesians have. This is what we have. Next, and since my battery must be dead, take a look at our next, our security, if you're taking notes. And even if you're not taking notes, our security. Look at verse 20. Having been built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. You and I have been brought into a personal faith, a family as we've discussed, and a unity. But here's the awesome news. This has an immovable foundation. Can't be moved. You know, you've got these commercials for, is your house suffering from a foundation crack issue? God's foundation has no cracks, never will. It'll never need J-E-S or whoever that, uh, you know, come in there and help fix the foundation. The prophets and the apostles, what does this mean? The prophets and the apostles, they represent the Word of God. The Old Testament is called the Law and the Prophets. The New Testament is from the epistles and, the, and what Jesus gave to the apostles and the early church. The Law and the Prophets, or the Prophets and the Apostles here, represents the Word of God. And all of that represents Christ, who said he is the Word incarnate. He's the Word made flesh. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when it says the prophets and the apostles, it's simply saying everything Jesus spoke through men is in the Word, and that's the foundation. Why we go verse by verse the Bible at Calvary Chapel is the Word is the foundation. But not just the written word, the living word. If it was only written word, I could preach a message and just be knowledgeable message, but it has to be preached with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the living word meets the written word. You don't want just the written word because that's actually legalism. People just become Pharisees. But when the, living, when the written word and the living word are the foundation, you don't have Pharisees. Well, you still can, but God breaks that up more and more. He kind of plows that heart and says, no, 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 you need the law, the prophets, the apostles, but you need it in the spirit of the Lord, which is Christ. This is the bedrock of our faith. Someone asked an astronaut once, how does it feel to be inside the space capsule? The astronaut replied, well, it makes you think when everything is done according to the lowest bid, it really makes you think. The foundation of our faith, the foundation of the church, the foundation of the family of God, was not purchased with the lowest bid. It was not done on government contract, lowest possible bid or whatever else. It was purchased with the highest bid. The bid was the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and the Father set the price. And it's worth more, think about this, the foundation that Jesus laid with the word of God made flesh, the foundation is worth more than every person, every angel, every creative thing, every living thing, every non-living thing, every visible thing, every invisible thing, all combined. Isn't that amazing? It's worth more than all of it. This foundation is worth more than all of that. Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ is the only perfect definition of security. There is. Even when I was in, when I was in the business world, I, was in, I worked for a high-tech company, and we had a saying that we said among ourselves all the time, security is a myth, and yet people are buying it by the millions. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have, I do use dead bolts and, you know, we have an alarm system and all that stuff, but it only can take you so far, true? Which is true, yes. 
You can be armed to the teeth and still. Goliath found this out. One shot right here. Boom. So security has its limitations, but not the security that God has laid, not the foundation that he has laid. Christ is the only perfect definition of security, and the perfect foundation was laid when he laid down his life. That's when the foundation was laid. And that's why it says he's the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. He can't be moved. He won't be moved. He's the one we stand on. We stand in, and we will stand on forever if we really believe in him. Do you believe you'll stand with Jesus forever? He'll never be moved. He's sitting on the throne for all eternity. It says in um, Isaiah 28, 16, I love this passage, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for foundation, a tried stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. God says, the world has never seen the foundation I'm about to lay when I send my son. Once that foundation is laid, it can never be moved. You can stand on the rock. Jesus said, whoever falls on the rock will be saved. But if you say, well, I, I just kind of want to look at the rock from a distance, there's only salvation and firmness in standing on the rock. Mark 12, 10, and <clears throat> Jesus was quoting here in Psalm 118, 22. Uh, so Jesus quoted the Old Testament quite a bit. He said, have you not read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become what? The chief cornerstone. Right. Now, when this was prophesied, Jesus was the fulfillment of it. He was that chief cornerstone. And we may have personally, you and I, I, I did. For 25 years, I rejected the cornerstone. I wanted the bars. I wanted fun. I wanted what I wanted to do. I wanted my dreams, my hopes, my th my." Definition of fun, you had your own definition of fun. Some of our definitions were identical and just as you know, faulty. But now we put our faith and our trust and our future in Christ, the cornerstone. We've now banked our entire lives on the security of the rock of our salvation. Is that true for you? Have you banked your entire life on the security of Christ, the rock of your salvation? Did you know... A million things could dissolve everything you have tonight. Say, so, oh, that could never happen. Have you not studied world history? There is no sure thing except Jesus. Amen. There isn't. I was talking about Wednesday night. I've been praying this week, by the way. I've, I've, I have been praying for Kathy Griffin, Tiger Woods, and all kinds of other celebrities and well-known people. I don't have any animosity or hatred towards any of them. I don't. Because Jesus is reaching out to them with love. I pray for terrorists. How about you? Here's the thing. Uh, Tiger Woods. I used to love to watch him play golf. I hope he comes back and someday plays really good again. I really do. He's got $700 million, but he's still not happy. He's got the wrong foundation. He's got more money than I'll ever dream about. But you're like, you need all these kind of medications in your in your sad and depressed, and you know, God's reaching out to him saying, I've got a plan for your life. Mm -hmm. It's better than winning a Masters. It's better than winning golf tournaments or whatever else it is. <clears throat> We've banked our lives on the security of Christ. And not only us, but the apostles and prophets, they banked their life on the Messiah to come. It's mentioned here, the apostles and prophets. They banked their life. They died for the faith. You realize that the apostles, uh, all but one, died for the faith because they banked that their future was secure in the Lord. Last thing we want to look at this morning, these last two verses, 
our sanctification. I've had this off the whole time, so anyway. <laughs> hey, I didn't have to admit it. I'm just telling you. I could have kept, kept that information to myself. But I'm here to tell you, I'm a flawed individual more ways than you know. And so these messages, I, I can promise you, I preach them to me well before they ever hit your ears. Let's look at our last one. It's good to have a team back there. It's a, that's a good illustration. Do you know, you know that this illustrates why it's important to have people in your life? You're messing up more than you think you are. You've got people walking behind you, picking. You ever, ever seen a Leslie Nielsen movie? You know, it's, this is our life. Don't think too much of a lesson. You know, there, there's, there's way, as my unsaved days, I, I, un, I understand that. But our sanctification here, these final two verses, look what it says. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. These final two verses explain two fundamental truths the saints saved by God and the saints assembled as one in God. Okay? We're all saved by God, but then assembled as one in Him. We, on the one hand, follow this train of thought, we, on the one hand, from a promise standpoint, from a promise standpoint, and from God's eternity standpoint, we are 100% sealed already in heaven. From a promise standpoint, and from God's eternal viewpoint, we're already sealed in heaven. You can look back to uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says this. He says, um, who has uh, given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We'll say, I'm not up in heaven right now. From a promise standpoint and from God's perspective, you are, if you're saved. Chapter 2, verse 6, same, same chapter we're in. Let's go up to the sixth verse. It says, and he has raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly place in Christ Jesus. So, well, I'm sitting, in, uh, I'm sitting in one of these really comfortable chairs right now, not in heaven. Well, from God's perspective, no. We're already sealed and promised and seated with the other saints. In future and in God's outside of time perspective. You've got to understand, sometimes the Bible's talking about the here and now. Sometimes it's talking about God's view of eternity. It's fully complete. Jesus was slain. We understand this also was demonstrating the life of Jesus. Jesus, according to the scripture, was slain before the foundation of the earth. We'll say, I thought it was 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. It was. But it was completed in God's economy before it ever happened. Yet, so God is outside of our understanding of this, but we can kind of get our mind around it to some extent. Then Jesus came and he actually finished the work, even though God said it was done before it happened. And this is the second fundamental truth of who we are individually and collectively. We're justified, and we're sealed, and we're complete in Christ. That's a done deal. If you've repented and put your faith in Christ, he will not take your salvation away from you. You can decide you don't want it anymore, but God will never take it away from you. You say, oh, I don't want this anymore. I want to be an atheist now. God will, that, that's your choice, but he will never let anyone pluck you out. You'd have to say, I want out. He will never take away your salvation. Our abiding testifies to our authenticity. That's why Jesus said, abide in me. 
uh, Scripture says that we have eternal security. We have the eternal security of the saints because the Holy Spirit's been given us to help us abide. We couldn't even abide if it wasn't for God. But the, we could say, I don't want the Spirit. But we say, no, we will abide. That's the testimony of our authenticity is that we abide in the Lord. But this second truth, um, we have the first understanding that, yes, we are sealed. That's our justification, right? But this second truth is our sanctification, our sanctification. Well, that's a process, isn't it? Those of you who have been saved for a few years, you, you know that the process is taking longer than you expected, right? It's like a wait time at a doctor's office. It's going to be longer than you probably were hoping. And our sanctification takes longer. We're still saved, but sometimes we think, are we really? Because would I really have that thought? Sanctification takes a while. That, that doesn't mean you stopped abiding in Christ. That doesn't mean you bailed on the Lord. It just means you still have flesh that needs to be put to death. It has to be mortified, and the, and the Lord helps us do that over time. Just like um, Jesus came and fulfilled that guaranteed work of salvation, um, we have to, in the work of sanctification, we have to walk it out. We have to walk out that uh, life of salvation we have the guarantee that Christ will never take our salvation, but we still have to walk it out, right? If your employer says, if you come to work today and put eight, out, eight hours, we promise to pay you. If you say, I'd like to phone it in, will that work? <laughs> See, this promise is conditional. You've got to actually come walk this thing out. We're not going to You will not be fired. You will not be let go, but you must come and do what you've been asked to do. And God says, all right, I've saved you. Now you're going to have to walk this thing out. Right. That's sanctification. We're security in it, but, but there is still this responsibility. God says now, and really, even as we walk it out, God's doing the work because we couldn't change ourselves if we wanted to. We just are following obedience. And we see here, though, the building, this mention, in whom the whole building fitted together, this building uh, think about the fact that we have our personal building. That's your body, your personal tabernacle. You are one little building, but then we are put together as a larger building, the body of Christ, fitted together, one in the Lord, the house of God. And both the larger structure and you and me, the little smaller individual tabernacles, we are all still under construction. Understand that? This, the text tells us this. It says, whom the whole building fitted together grows. Grows is a state of actually it's changing into a holy temple in whom you are being built together. The construction cranes are still on us and still on the church. It's a process. Both are under construction, growing, being fitted, being assembled. But unlike other buildings like the building we're in, this building is actually alive. It's a living building. It's, there's no other building like the body of Jesus Christ. It's a living building. The household of God is alive. Each individual cell in you and me is a collection of cells that are maturing and are going through a process, but they're all necessary, one another, to make up the entire body. They all help us take literal steps forward. Whether it's a body built, being built up, and you think about the cells inside of a body, again, it's kind of following that thought. 
the cells inside of a body, they're all necessary to build up for things like speed, stamina, strength, right? Say, well, that, these cells probably don't matter. Oh, yeah, they do. You think the kidney matters? Well, you don't think about it, but it matters, right? All of these things play a role. And it's not an easy process to build the body up. It's not an easy process to build the spiritual body up. A building, you think about a building, a building has to be nailed together. Anyone ever done any framing of houses and things like that? A building has to be nailed together. It has to be put together. It has to be pieces have to be cut. Pieces have to be shaped. Some have to be bent. Some construction is in cold days. Some days is in blazing hot days. Some days is in raining days. I remember when I framed houses for two summers in college, uh, I learned about all the different fun and then I did uh, winter break. I would come and you know, I'd work in the freezing cold and you got these splits in your fingers. But the building must go on, right? There's called a timeline. God has a timeline for all of us. We don't know what it is, but we're on one. Individual for us, but also collective as the body of Christ. And it's, but building buildings are not a five-minute job, are they? Take some patience. Has, a, has to have a plan. Has to have a blueprint. But the blueprint belongs to God. The blueprint for us and the blueprint for the church. A.W. Tozer says, the health of our souls requires that we take the whole Bible as it is, as it stands, and let it do its work in us. Do you take the whole Bible as truth and let it do its work in you? We have to. Are we submitted to the blueprint of God? Are we submitted to the building plan of God? The growth plan of God in us and one another? And if we are, we'll stand on the Word of God, we'll stay in the Word of God, and we'll walk by the Spirit of God. But notice the process. You, me, and the church are inseparable. Just like I actually needed the sound people to cover up for the fact that I read off, or I read off as it was on when I should have been reading on as it on. We have a need for one another that we don't always know we do. But God says, trust me, you need each other. I've put you together for a reason. The teaching ministry and the ministry of um, the apostles, uh, it eliminates, if you read the ministry of the apostles, you read the teaching of Jesus, it eliminates any possibility of a lone ranger faith. You would never be able to read the Bible and say, I think, I think I figured this out. I'm supposed to read my Bible, hang out by myself, and watch TV evangelists. That's all I need to do. And I can be just as, just as growing as anyone else. No. We do have a personal walk, and we have a personal race to run. But it's done in unison with others. It's done in unison with others. We're like running... Our running together is like a marine platoon. You ever seen they run together? Everybody gets up at the same time. Everyone runs the same race. It starts in Paris Island when they get to uh, indoctrinated with this uh, fun activity. And they run it together. This is not like the jogger that just says, oh, I think I'll run at 5. I think I'll run. Yeah, today I'm going to run at 9 a.m. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to run at 5 a.m. No, that's running by yourself. The, the family of God says, no, no, you're in a platoon to run together not an individual jogger. The second, uh, in verse 21, it says, um, in whom the whole building um, fitted together 
this is the second of three Greek words uh, in this portion of the text that start with the same prefix, uh, and they mean uh, either with or together. Uh, fellow citizens is the one, fitted together is the other, and built together. Those three terms all start with the same Greek prefix. Back in verses 5 through 7, you don't have to turn there, but it's in the same chapter, we also had three Greek prefixes used three times to enforce that our unity in salvation was with Christ. So God is, through the Holy Spirit, making the point that it is a with. It is a with. You're saved individually, but then you're brought with the body of Christ. First into union with Jesus, but then into union with his disciples. And in that union, then he places the Holy Spirit in us individually and collectively. The Western or American notion that I don't need to be in church to be a Christian is diametrically opposed to Scripture. doesn't mean that you're a Christian because you go to church. We just pray that we even have people that come to church that aren't saved. But it does say that the true believers will want to be part of a body gathering because the Holy Spirit would never tell them something different. He's told every other saint for 2,000 years. There's not a new doctrine for it. The same message is that it would be diametrically opposed. Israel was supposed to go forward as 12 tribes together and not say, hey, I think our tribe, we, we want to be this one uh, out in China. You 11, do whatever you want. It was supposed to be together. In Mark 16, verse 18, listen to what Jesus said. Again, these are Jesus' exact words. You say, are you sure this is right? Well, listen to Jesus. And also I say to you, Peter, his, his, he gave him this word, Peter, Simon. Whenever he was Simon, that was, he was, uh, Peter was off the rails. Whenever he was doing right, he called him Peter, which means little rock. He said, you are Peter, little rock. On this rock, he, now Jesus speaking of himself, on this rock, the cornerstone, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said what? I'll build my what? Church. You know what that word means? You might have heard the word before. It's a Greek word called ecclesia. You ever heard that term? Ecclesia. You know what ecclesia means? It means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into a public place and assembly. Hmm. Gathering them out of their homes into a public place and assembly. Later, in the same Greek, it meant in the early church, it added this meaning. An assembly of Christians gathered for worship and religious meeting. The same word is used 118 times in the New Testament, and it always means assembled together. God says, Ecclesia, I want on the, my church, as they gather, where two or three are gathered to what? Pray, witness, open the word, I will explode with the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. If they neglect it and forsake it, then it'll be detrimental to them personally, but also to the work of Christ. I guess we could say that technically someone could be married and willingly never come home to their spouse and just send a check for bills and maybe send an email uh, and maybe even get together, how about this, for Christmas and Easter. They would be married, but they'd have no marriage, right? There's no heart of the marriage there. And Paul is expressly saying that Jesus saved us to come together, to bond together, to serve together. Because the mission of God is too big to be done by ourselves. It's too big to be done alone. It can't be done alone. It's like a tennis ball. You hit a tennis ball, it's moving in one direction quickly. But then it hits a wall. 
And then it's coming backwards. We can only go so far on our own momentum. We can only grow so far alone. I've learned this personally. Uh, God has shown me. And before I got saved, I didn't even, I, I didn't even come home to family meetings, family reunions. I don't need these people. I was, I've always been very self-reliant. God has said, you're way too self-reliant. He's even taught me in the last four years, the last two years, even this year, you need people in ways you don't know. And I'm going to make your clicker be an, an example of this in the message. Just to, just, if it doesn't remind anyone else, it'll remind you. It does remind me. Everyone needs close personal discipleship and mentoring. Um, think about this. You get saved, you're a baby in Christ. How many of you, when you were a baby, didn't change your own diapers? The spiritual and the physical parallel each other. Just like a baby would not survive if someone wasn't personally involved in their life. Christians that say, well, now that I'm saved, I don't need anybody. I just can't, I don't need to work in the body of Christ. I don't need to serve. I don't need to be discipled. I don't need to be mentored. I don't need to be in fellowship. I don't need anything. So, well, tell that to a two-year-old. Oh, well, that doesn't work because that's physical. God is trying to say, if, if you said, don't believe me, read the scripture, you'll see that the parallels are all there. He's saying, the same, I did that. That's why he said, you can't even get saved unless you become like a little child. The physical is to show us that the spiritual is a mirror. We need, just like kids can't raise themselves, Christians can't raise themselves. They need other believers in their life to do it. And this is why Paul wrote these things to the Ephesians. Every Christian needs this. Every stone that has been cut from the earth is the former life, and then it's placed in and fitted into the uh, building of the household of God. And this is what it's saying here, that it's fitted together. Jesus fits each stone. You and I are one of the stones fitted into the temple. We are one of those stones fitted in. We're not codependent, but we are interdependent. That makes sense? We are interdependent of one another. And the starting point is believing that this is true and praying it in your life. Say, Lord, I believe this is true. I'm willing to be made willing. I'm going to pray this. Lord, I'm going to take my place within the ministry of being discipled or discipling other people. I'm going to take my place within the body of Christ. I'm going to serve in the body. I'm going to be part of that wall that you've placed me in. Fit it in. Did you know, we're, we're almost closed here, but this is really cool stuff. I want to finish with this. It will really help you understand something, I believe. Did you know when Solomon built the first temple? Because Paul references temple here. He says, you're being built into a holy temple. When Solomon built the first physical temple, at the entrance of the temple building, he placed two huge brass pillars. So when you'd walk in, the main, there was these two huge brass pillars that held up the porch. Massive structures. And at the top, um, I'll get to that in a second, uh, he named the pillars. He named the pillars, two names. The one on the right side was called Jacob, and it means he shall, establish, uh, he shall establish. It means firm and stable. The other pillar he named Boaz, and it meant in, in it is strength or simply strength. Taken together, the two pillars mean this, stability and strength. Stability and strength. That was the first thing you would see when you're coming. Those two massive pillars. Then at the top of the pillars, there was a carving of ornate lilies. Lilies were carved at the top of it. And the two pillars were strong and stable. 
But the lilies were a picture of them being living, living pillars. And the fragrance of lilies are amazing. You ever smelled a lily? They're amazing fragrance. Jesus is called what? The lily of the valley. But here's the image Paul is referencing in the temple. Christian, you and I cannot be strong and stable. We cannot be the fragrance of Christ unless we're placed into the temple. That's the picture. Solomon got, he was the wisest man ever. He understood. He was foreshadowing the future body of Christ there. The strong, stable church, the strong, stable believer is placed into the temple and God carves lilies in us, makes us strong together and then fits every piece in there. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer.